Love is like COVID. <laughs> new, brand new comparison. Because love creates alienation and it brings infection. Tonight what we'll see is the king toward his bride is going to overcome her sense of alienation from him and infect her with his love. Now, COVID, right? You get close to someone, you get COVID. So we tend to either not care and we act like life is going normal or we alienate ourselves and distance ourselves or um, literally divide ourselves over certain issues in COVID, right? Love can do this because it can create a sense of unworthiness. We want to distance ourselves from something that we feel we don't deserve. Um, but if we allow ourselves to get close to the love of the king, it will infect us with a what C.S. Lewis called a good infection. Now, here's how he puts it. You just can't do his words better than him, so... Um, listen to this super simple logic. Good things as well as bad are caught by a kind of infection. Love would be good. COVID would be bad. Yeah. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. Okay. So if you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, then you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize that God could, if he chose, just to hand out to anyone. What, what he's saying there is if you want the qualities of God, they are caught by nearness, by getting into God. They are not things that God hands out as prizes and rewards for your good behavior. Do you understand? That's very profound and important. We don't gain God's benefits, his blessings, his attributes because we're good. We gain them because of nearness to him. That's what Lewis is portraying. Now he continues. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Close enough to God, you're going to gain his attribute of eternal life. We just read that in John. We believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. You have eternal life. The Greek says eternal life. I think John just said life, but yeah. Um, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God... What can he do but wither and die? Christ is the Son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we also shall be sons of God. We shall love the Father as Christ does, and the Holy Ghost will arise in us. For Christ came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has to spread it by what I call good infection. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. We get to live forever through good infection. We get to be sons and daughters of God through good infection. This is not warranted because we're worthy because we're good. It is given because we catch it from him. 
Love is like COVID. It can drive us away in fear or it can cause us to catch the contagion through nearness. We want the latter with Christ our King. We want to catch his eternal life by breathing the same air that he breathes. So the king tonight is going to invite the bride into this good infection. That's what he's going to do. That's what we're going to see. So if you were, if you weren't here last week, um, Song of Songs can be a little confusing, but we're going to simplify it like this. So real quick review. This is a poetic book. It's poetry. It's not a historic book. Okay, that means that Solomon may or may not have had this literal relationship with this woman. It's poetic. Um, but it is likely a reflection of Solomon on what he now realizes as he's writing his last, I contend it's his last 1,005th song that he wrote. It's his last. He's looking back on life, on his regrets, on the things he drove himself for. Because what he really wanted was intimacy, union, and communion with God in the Holy of Holies. But instead of going there, he went for the other things that his kingdom offered him. And now he's realizing after everything had failed him and he had fallen and failed, this is what I really yearn for. So he puts this last song, a poetic description of man and woman finding consummation, union, intimacy together. So this song works on two levels. On one hand, it is a sexual song. And we don't just gloss over the fact that there is graphic stuff in here. Oh, my son's in here. Hi. So we'll have to keep some words a little safe. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that just totally threw me off. <laughs> uh, yeah, there is stuff in here um, that it's there because... This is actually about a man and woman. But I do not believe that Solomon meant to stop there. He wants us to read this further. The title, Song of Songs, intentionally echoes Holy of Holies. The builder of the Holy of Holies is also the writer of the Song of Songs. And so this song is an invitation to union, communion, and intimacy with Christ. That's what we have here. So, yes, it has its sexual themes, but it is primarily a spiritual theme. Like that's, if you stop at the sexual, you're not allowing yourself to go far enough. And it's not, it's not, the re, this just shows the Christian boldness in reading the Song of Songs like this. That we can actually see the physical world as a window into what our life with Christ is like. That we don't look at sex and marriage and say, yeah, that's just earthly stuff. We look at it and say, this is a gift from God so that we can understand the union he wants with his creation. So that's what the Song of Songs is. It's an invitation to that holy of holies with Christ. Okay, so now let's look at our king, Christ, Solomon, um, bringing his bride, you and I, out of alienation and into his infection. Um one more thing, just to be clear. Um, I believe that there is a progression in the song, that there is a narrative in it, and that what we see right now is this is their courtship. So some commentators run crazy, like every single mention of fruit is some sexual analogy. I think they get a little too um, trigger happy <laughs> with this. Um, I think that we're looking at their courtship. In chapter 3, verse 6, 
You see the woman says, what is this coming up from the wilderness? Uh, you read on. It's describing Solomon's procession. It's a wedding procession. So in 3.6, we enter the marriage. Chapter 4 is very steamy. It's about their wedding night. And then chapters um, 5, 6, 7, and 8 describe marriage, or, uh, the, wed- uh, the marriage, yeah. So courtship, wedding, marriage. We're in the courtship phase tonight, and we will be next week. So in two weeks, we will get to the wedding ceremony. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> William's excited. <laughs> All right. So here is the bride. So I'm just going to call her the bride because that's what she ends up becoming. And the king for the man. Um, the bride's alienation from the king. This is where we start. So remember, verses 1 through 4 was our preface. It was our introduction, the prologue. Now verse 5, the narrative begins. And the bride says, I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? She opens up by saying, I am very dark. And then she says, do not look upon me for I am dark. We fear that our darkness will make us unlovable. We hear of the love of God, but what we tend to do is think, but that is not fit for me. I know who I am. I'm dark. And there's hesitation in our doubt, in our unworthiness, in our uncertainty that we want distance. Yes, Okay, it's great to know that you love me, but don't get too close. And so the, the song opens, the courtship opens with the bride's hesitation about this king's ecstatic love for her. I am very dark. Um, we tend to close up when others get too close up. You know what I mean? Someone gets too close to you, you tend to start to get guarded. We must earn our trust. We must want to be wanted by somebody. And here the bride is, whoa, this is not, this is, this is too close. I need some distance here. Um, think of Adam because this is our, we have, we, we received Adam's viewpoint of God. That when God came in the garden, Adam said, I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. That's what the bride is saying here. I don't want you to see me because I am insecure. And literally she's talking about her skin. It's dark. I don't, I don't feel beautiful. I don't feel worthy. So I would rather hide myself. Don't look upon me. Peter also had this sense in Luke chapter five, after the miraculous catch of fish, 
he falls down before Jesus and says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Peter is afraid of this being of love who seems to be ignorant of Peter's failures. And he says, well, you're not seeing me correctly. Back off. But what Jesus says in response is, do not be afraid. Follow me. And this is what the king is going to say to our bride. Don't be afraid that you're dark. Follow me. Um, now, there is progression. Okay, Even as she's saying this, love is fighting to draw her in. Because you'll notice in verse 5, she says, I am very dark, but lovely. I know I have flaws and imperfections, but there is something redeemable about me. Um, she says that she is dark. Um, okay, uh, okay, I'm dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. And then like the tents of Kedar, that goes with dark. I am very dark, like the tents of Kedar. Then she says, but lovely, like the curtains of Solomon. So those next two lines parallel the dark and the lovely. Um, the tents of Kedar were dark, literally. Actually, Kedar means black because the Bedouins of Kedar in the wilderness would make their tents out of dark goat's hair. So she's saying, I am like them. I am darkened by the sun, she had said, because I was working in the vineyards. My brothers were angry at me. They made me work out there. The sun has baked me and I am unlovely. Um, the, the tents of Kedar are also so interesting because you know where else it shows up in the Bible? It is the Old Testament. Good guess. <laughs> Psalm 120. It's the first of the Psalms of Ascent. Now, we prayed each of the Psalms of Ascent on our way up to Easter. Um, the Psalms of Ascent begin in Psalm 120, and they begin with this, Woe is me. Listen to this. Uh, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. The psalmist does not like that he's associated with Kedar. Why? Because Kedar is in the wilderness. It is not in the temple in Jerusalem where the worshiper desires to be. Yet, she says, our bride says, I am dark like the tents of Kedar, but then she says, but lovely like the curtains of Solomon. Do you know how the Psalms of Ascent end? We sing it every week. Psalm 134, come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. The Psalms of Ascent begin with woe is me that I am in the tents of Kedar and end with bless the Lord in the house of the Lord. You see the progression? And here she's talking about, but I'm lovely like the curtains of Solomon. She is on a psalm of ascent journey as well. She's ascending. She's changing because this is what love does when we let it grab us. It will turn us from unworthy. It will turn us from alienation to lovable and to infection. The love of God infecting us. Um, yes, she is dark, but she is lovely. She's dark, like we said in verse 6, because um, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Now, people often will jump quickly to the sex scene, like, oh, that means she's not a virgin. 
that's very unlikely given the context of the times. She's likely just saying, um, look, I because I was out in the vineyards working all the time, I got suntanned, my skin is now wrinkled, I did not get to take care of my own body. My body's thrashed because I worked in the vineyards, so I didn't get to take care of my own body. That's why I'm unlovable. That's what she means by my own vineyard I did not keep. This is a picture of you and I in our sin and enslaved by the passions. They put us to work and they wreck our loveliness. And that's what we remember when we stand before the king. We're not thinking of how he sees us. We're thinking of, ugh, but I've got this, I got aloe vera on my shoulder over here and the vine twigs, like I snapped something. I, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I cut my hand on doing something and like, it, it, the, the, the sweatiness and the dirtiness and the, the stench that I have, this is what we're aware of because sin has thrown us into the dirt. It's put us to work because the devil was angry with us. But she knows that she is also lovely. Something in the king's eyes. And she wants to find the king. So look at verse 7. She then says, like, there's hope, right? She's like, okay, you're giving, it, you're, you're giving me a chance. Okay, I'm going to step into this. Verse 7, tell me, you who my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. Of course, at noon, it'd be like siesta, too hot, you kind of take a break. She wants to, she wants to meet up with him wherever he's out there in the wilderness pasturing the flock. But then she says this, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? That's an allusion to prostitution um, because ladies would veil themselves and go hang out where the shepherds hang out, hoping to get some business. She's saying, why should I be like one of them veiling myself and wandering around looking for you? I don't want to go in every tent looking for you. I want straight access to you. And this is what we want too. If we want to have a good infection from the king, we don't need to go searching in every philosophy, in every nook and cranny that culture has to offer. I got to try it all before I decide. The king wants us to come straight away to him. And he's given us a path and he's given us a way. But she's asking, let me know that way so I can save myself the headache and the heartache of trying everything else that the world has to offer. So... The king now responds in verse 8. And here we hear his invitation. So she's in alienation, but now the king is going to offer an invitation because our love is awakened by the awareness that we are loved even in our darkness. She's going to figure out, wow, even in my darkness, he still loves me. So she's now going to get aroused, if you will. She's going to begin to desire and want union and closeness to the king. Um, okay, so here's what the king says. He invites her. So she wants to know, where can I find you? He says in verse 8, If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, right away he's addressing that issue. You are worthy. Follow in the tracks of the flock. That's how you'll find me. Where am I? Follow the tracks of my sheep. That's where I am. This is the church of Christ. We are the sheep of his pasture. And if we want to receive the king's invitation, he has put us in our communities to be the footprints of bringing alienated brides to the invitation of the king. 
This is what churches are for. This is why we are not just cruising in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb as soon as you said the Jesus prayer and received him in your heart, right? This is why we're here. We are leaving footprints. Every good deed we do, every act of worship, every prayer, every time we are together, every time we go into our communities and impact people, we are leaving footprints for alienated dark brides to find the one whom their soul loves, but that love just hasn't yet been awakened because they haven't heard him say, you are beautiful, my love. They just hear, don't look at me because I'm dark. We get to be those tracks. And if you are looking for that invitation from the king, you're in a good place. I believe you're in the best place, but that's, I'm partial and biased. Um, you're in a good place because here we are trying to follow the footprints of the flock. Um, so then he says in the middle of verse eight, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I love this because, um, I don't remember which one, but one of the, I think it's Gregory of Nyssa. I remember I told you he was like one of the earlier, like fourth century sermons on the Song of Songs. Gregory, uh, I think it was him, he pointed out that in the parable of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, the sheep were the ones who did the will of the Father and the goats were the ones who did not. And here, she's she's got this flock of goats and the king's inviting her, follow the footprints of the flock and leave your goats by the shepherd's tent. Like, leave your goats with me. I'll take care of them. You don't have to have this burden of goats following you. Your dirty, bad, rotten deeds all your life. I love that. Um, and then he begins to praise her. Verse 9. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Okay, not our choice analogy. But if you actually think about it, horses are gorgeous. They are sleek. They are strong. They are graceful. Their manes flow beautifully in the wind. And they don't even have pert plus. Remember those commercials, but yeah. Um, They're beautiful creatures, and he's comparing her to this beauty and this elegance. But more than that, do you know what the Egyptians did in warfare? So the enemy chariots would be pulled not by mares, but by stallions, male horses. The strong, gusty ones, they would put them leading the chariots. So what the Egyptians would do when when the stallion chariots of the enemy army came, they would release a mare out to go wander around (laughs) the enemy chariots. And you know what all the stallions would do? Oh, man, they would get distracted and they would become uncontrollable. That was a brilliant strategy. And what the king is saying to the bride is you are a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. You are a distraction to me in the best way possible. Like, I cannot stop thinking of you. And that's like Psalm 8, when the psalmist says, Who am I? What is the son of man that you would be mindful of him? And the king's, he's assuring her, like, I, I am turned toward you like a stallion around a mare. That's what you are to me, my love. Then there's more praise. Um, your cheeks, verse 10, are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. And then the others, this is the second time we see them break in. Um, people always want to break into your romance, don't they? <laughs> or into your walk with God. Uh, others say, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. 
but here they're encouraging her. Yes, we are in this too. We want to see you guys together. And brothers and sisters, the people around you tonight, these are the others. They, they're encouraging your union with Christ. We are, we're for you. We want to encourage that. We want to help. We don't believe in alienating people because they feel like there's too much darkness in them. Impossible. The Lord of glory has been raised from the dead. There's no darkness anymore unless you keep yourself in it. He wants to pull us out and we want to be there too saying, hey, he wants to adorn you with ornaments of gold. Now, that's the invitation. Now we see she's going to respond. She meets up with him at noon. She's going to be in his tent. Um, this is in verse 12. And so we see now our infection from the king. She's going to get close to him now. And we're going to see the king's good infection is going to come upon her. So the good infection happens to us when we get close enough to the king to acquire his nature. That's what we're after. She's going to start to acquire his nature in this passage. Um, she, he, she is infected by, by three of the king's qualities. And the first one is, starts in verse 12. It's all in what she says here. She says in verse 12, while the king was on his couch, um, some put his banqueting table. The Hebrew is very vague. It just, it just describes something that's circular. And it's not clear if it's an object that's circular or if something is encircling the people in the room. Um, so it, what is clear, though, is that it's an object. So it's likely that the king's either sitting on his couch or like a, a throne or or he's at a table. It's noon. It's probably breaking bread. It's probably a little bit of all this happening. People lounging around. And the, the being encircled part may be that he's got other shepherds or other servants or other people, like his court, in, in a sense. It might just be an image of a king and his his entourage. And she is in the midst of this with him. So we might have some sort of assembly of some sort. Um, that's the scene that we have. And okay, so it says, while the king was on his couch, or while he was encircled, uh, my nard gave forth its fragrance. Now, nard is simply a very, very costly and valuable perfume. And she has it with her, and it says that my nard gave forth its fragrance. Now, I don't know about you, but I find the language of this phrase incredibly odd. Minard gave forth its fragrance. It had a mind of its own. It just started wafting. <laughs> My son says things like this all the time. <laughs> it just happened. I didn't do it. Um, um, what we see here is she is not necessarily opening up a flask of nard and applying perfume to herself. It is happening by virtue of her being in the presence of her king. And this is what we see and this is what we know in our own Christian worship is that the king's presence draws from us our fragrance. We are rotten, we're dark, and we stink. Didn't Martha say at the tomb of Lazarus, Lord, he's been dead four days, he stinks, don't open it. We do not want to open up to the king because we are fearful of the death in us. But when we are in his presence, he opens up our fragrance. That's what he produces from us. Now, um, to go further, 
um, it's not just our fragrance. It's his fragrance in us. This is what 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says. 2 Corinthians 2 14. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. The knowledge of Christ is spread everywhere through us. Now, Paul continues, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, we are a fragrance of from death to death. To the other, we are fragrance from life to life. We are the fragrance of Christ, he's saying. It's amazing. Then he closes, he says, who is sufficient for these things? You and I, like the bride say, I am not worthy of this. I am dark. But in the presence of the king, he releases his own fragrance from us. It's a lot also like the woman uh, on the Wednesday before Jesus dies who breaks the flask of nard and pours it over his head. 300 days worth of wages is how much she poured on his head. And the critics did not like it. But Jesus said that this will be shared with the gospel. What is she doing? She's opening her heart and her love to Christ. This is what happens when we allow ourselves to meet with the king and sit before him. Is that the fragrance of Christ is released if we open our hearts. That's all it takes. We don't though because we're scared of what it will smell like. But here we get assurances that it will be pleasing to him. So we are, what we see in this verse is that we are infected with the king's fragrance. Nearness to the king brings an infection and we smell like him. So she continues in verse 13. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. You'd put myrrh in just like a little like locket thing so you could smell it with you wherever you go. Because, you know, ancient days didn't smell that dandy. Um, and she's saying, like, the way I smell the myrrh all day long, that's what he is like to me. He's in my thoughts all the day. I'm lovesick for him. Uh, 14, my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Henna blossoms are white. And Engedi is a, is in a, it's by the Dead Sea. So it's this little garden oasis in the midst of a dead land. That's what he's like to me. Beauty in the midst of death. And now he, he speaks to her. And this is, we, we see now the second infection. Um, we then become infected with the king's assurance. So we have his fragrance, and then we get infected with his assurance. We're full of doubt and self-loathing. He's full of assurance about who we are, and he's going to speak this to us. When we hear the king's words, we gain confidence about who we are in his sight. It's not about how we feel or how we see ourselves. It's about what he sees us as. That's what matters. So he says to her in verse 15, now I imagine, by the way, that they've now left the tent and they're taking a noon stroll around the countryside. Um, and they're looking at each other as they walk and the birds are singing. And uh, in verse 15, he says, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Again, not our go-to analogy, but 
what we do see here is that he is close enough to her to see her eyes. I was riding with two friends in the car today, and one of them said, oh, I didn't even know your eyes were that color. And it just hit me like, that's so true. Most people we talk to, I don't think if you close your eyes, like, what color is this person's eyes and that person? We're often not close enough to people to look at their eyes and describe their eyes. It takes intimacy to know what differentiates this person's eyes from another person's eyes. And here the king is this close to her. That's intimacy. And he's assuring her, I'm close enough to see your eyes and they're lovely. You don't have to blink. You don't have to look away. And that's the other side of this. She's now becoming more confident, isn't she? She is, the the king's assurance is now rubbing off on her. She's getting infected with it because now she can stare back at him without averting her gaze. She's staring at him without distraction, enough that they can see each other's eyes. This is beautiful. This is, this is close. And so now she in response says in verse 16, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. And now you can see them there. They're, sit, they're sitting down on a hillside underneath a tree. And she says, look, our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. They're just out in the, in the forest now. And and they begin to just say, look, this is like a house for us because we're together and all the world is fine and we can make everything a place of intimacy. This is what happens when you and I get close to the king and his assurance rubs off on us. You begin to feel like everywhere you go is the ground around the burning bush. That every bush is potentially alive with the presence of God. That everywhere we go is holy ground. That the Garden of Eden wasn't just there, but now here when I'm with the beloved. Now this is a Garden of Eden. This schoolroom tonight is a Garden of Eden. Everywhere we go with the king, we're walking in the cool of the garden of the day with him. That's the beauty of being united with Christ. Is that there is no place called death anymore. That's, by the way, what probably Christ meant when he said the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Gates don't march. That's not what he meant. He meant that when we go to the gates of Hades, they're not going to say, how dare you come? We can walk right through it because there is no place of death for us anymore. When Christ was raised in John 20, I know I said this last week, but it's worth reminding ourselves that when, when Mary looks into the tomb, it's not a place of death anymore, but it's a place of angelic beings positioned to look like the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. This is what we get to walk in when we're with the Beloved. Everywhere we go, our couch is green and our, our, our rafters are cedars. We are in the Garden of Eden. So she is now full of assurance Kind of. You and I will always walk with these doubts, won't we? So then she says this. For chapter 2, verse 1. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Oh, how lovely. Until you realize what she's saying. I am a common meadow flower. That's what she's saying. There are 20,000 of them in this field, and we probably trampled 1,700 of them on our way here. I am just a common meadow flower. But hey, it's progress. She once said, I am dark and unlovely. Unlovely. Now she's, well, okay, I'm a, I'm a flower. Common, but I'm a flower. Well, the king, continuing to assure us of who we are, says in return in verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, a, fla- a common meadow flower, well then, 
You are a lily among brambles. So is my love among the young women. When I look out at the field of women, they are all thorns and thistles. But you are a lily. It's a common meadow flower. You're more than that to me. That's the assurance. You can hear how the king just raises her up to a better place. And now the third infection, we have the fragrance, the assurance. Now the third infection is we're infected with the king's transcendence. This is wild. This is Christian. This is what religion doesn't offer, but Christianity does. We are infected with the king's transcendence. The bride is going through transformations. And you're going to see this starting in verse 3. So uh, imagine now that this is a different day or that they've moved on to something else because now we're going to see that they're at a different, they're not in the pasture, they're going to be at a wine house or a banqueting table. Um, verse 3. As an apple tree among the, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. So yeah, you got common forest trees, but then you've got that one that's blossoming with fruit. You ever see the cherry blossoms up here? There's a few cherry trees that just, ah, or the apple blossoms, they, they stand out. It's like pine, pine, cedar, pine, oak, and it's like, whoa, that one bears fruit. It's beautiful to behold. And it also gives you something. I don't know if, there's a, there's a cherry tree actually right here by the pool. The best cherries I've ever tasted in my life. In the summer, just go ahead and wander up there and take a few because they usually just rot or the birds get to them before um, you do. So it's, yeah, anyways. Um, yeah, anyways, what was my point? Oh, yeah, this is my, so same thing kind of, like this is my, like, you stand out among all the other kings. You are the king of kings. Um, okay, so as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young women. With great delight, I sat in his shadow and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Again, I don't think that we have to read any sexual connotations in here. This seems to be courtship. The wet, the marriage hasn't happened. What we're describing here, I think within the context of our passage, she's describing a transformation. She wants, what does she say in verse 6? This is chapter 1, verse 6. She had said that the sun, don't gaze on me because the sun has looked down upon me. I am dark because of the sun. I labored in the vineyards. I sweated in the sun. Now she's, that's a life that's behind her. She has accepted the king's invitation. She has followed the, the tracks of the flock. She has sat in his tent. They've gazed at each other's eyes. They have walked through the garden of Eden together. And now she's sitting, not working in the hot vineyards. She's sitting in the shelter of his shade under a tree probably meant to make us think of he is to her the tree of life he's restoring her so this is a transformation she's no longer a slave of the vineyard she gets to rest in the shade of the tree and then in verse four we see another transformation he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love a banner is a a flag that armies would pitch or fly so that you would know okay that's the cavalry that's the archers and banners were also used to make signals and warfare that's what she means by um standard that's what i'm looking for they're called standards that's what she means his banner his standard over me he's claimed me he is my she is mine he's claimed me he's put that title over me um now but notice where she is she was once working in the vineyard 
now she is drinking the fruit of the vineyard at the banqueting house. Your footnote, if you're, the ESV at least gives it to you, tells you that the Hebrews literally the wine house. That that's where they are. They're at the wine house. She once worked to slave over making grapes grow, but now she is enjoying the fruit of what she had used to do. She's getting to enjoy the product of the vineyard. And that's what Christ is about. He's about transforming us and bringing us into our true purpose. He wants us to enjoy his fruit. And in, and in our life of sin, all of those mistakes are not just, oh, let's just erase that and give you a clean and start you all over from scratch. Christ is about taking who we were and taking our mistakes and resurrecting them to bring us to be of use in his kingdom. And so here, her past life is now being brought and he, she is getting to enjoy a better version of what she once was stuck in. And so she gets to drink of the king's wine. She gets to banquet at his house. This is good stuff. This is transformation. This is, see, the king is transcendent, isn't he? He, there's nothing that can rank to God. He is the infinite creator. There's no limit to who he is. He transcends all things. That doesn't mean he detaches himself from all things. He's with us in created things. But he is above the created things. He's not limited to the created things. And you and I are not limited to what the world tells us we are. We're not limited to the passions that have chained us or captured us. We're not limited to our sins and regrets and failures. We're not limited to our weaknesses. In the king, his transcendence infects us. And we begin to experience our own limited transcendence as we come out of those limitations. We begin to change and grow. And we see that I'm no longer that woman in the vineyard. I'm now at the table. I'm no longer in the sun. I'm in the shade. This is what Gregory of Nyssa said in one of his homilies. He said, human nature came into being as something capable of becoming whatever it determines upon. What? Human nature was created to be dynamic, meaning we were intended and created to grow. We were not given limitations. Now, what did we what did we pray in Psalm 115? What were some of those phrases? Do you remember? The gods of the nations are idols, right? They are wood and stone. They have mouths, but do not. They have ears, but do not. They have eyes, but do not. They have noses, but do not. I mean, they might smell, but they can't smell. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Um, There's limitations to these gods. But here's what it then said down toward the bottom. All who worship them become like them. What Gregory of Nyssa is saying is he recognizes that the human nature was created to be uh, to be infected by that which it is near to. We are contagious beings. The things around us are contagious, I should say, and we catch them. If we are going to rub shoulders with idols, you're going to become like your idol. If we rub shoulders with the king, we're going to become like the king. So let me finish uh, Nissa's quote, Gregory's quote, so that um, I just want to get you on board what he, the power of what he's saying. So he said, human nature came into being as something capable of being whatever it determines upon. And 
to whatever goal the thrust of its choice leads it. It undergoes alteration in accord with what it seeks. In layman's terms, he's saying, we will become that which we seek out. We will catch that what we are close to. And he did not put limitations on this. If we get close to the God of the universe, guess what we become like? That's phenomenal stuff. This is way beyond the New Age self-help stuff that is masquerading as Christian religion. This is you get to become a son and daughter of the king. This is we get to have consummation and oneness and marriage with him because of Christ. This is an astonishing claim that no human mortal would have ever made up. I mean, we are saying things that we ought not to say. And yet God has said it for us. Transcendence. She's experiencing this. The king is raising her beyond what she thought were her limitations. You and I, what can we be if we will allow the king close enough to have a good infection on us? What can happen? So the passage closes with her literally falling into love with the king. This is great. Verse 5, 6, and 7. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. Some of us might be sick of love, but she is sick with love because she's found true love. And and it's also, um, some translations put it, I'm wounded with love. She has been hit with the love. And she's crying out, someone sustain me. They're at the table, right? There's raisins, there's apples, there's food. Someone help me because I am weak with love. I am falling. I am about to faint. This is good. And then in verse six, she seems to faint for she says his left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. It seems that she has, he swooped in just in time. Hero. Swept her off. Well, she, she fell off her feet and he's, he yeah, swept her off her head, I guess. She, she didn't hit her head. Um, and she's delighted. Now that could also be translated because she says, sustain me with raisins. So verse six could say, may his left hand be under my head. May he embrace me. But um, I, I, I like to see her have more of a narrative where she's just sick with love. She's about to faint. She does faint. He swoops in and before she dashes herself to the floor, he catches her. And now she says in verse seven, because now her love has been awakened. Because she now is aware that the king loves her even in her darkness. And so she now says this to the audience. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. In other words, to be loved in unconditionally is to take a trust fall. She's allowing the king now to love her and she's experienced it. And she's taken a trust. She's literally taken a fall. She has fallen into love. You see that? She's fallen into his arms. We have the saying, we fall in love. And sometimes we think it's just like you're walking around and you're just tripping. Oh, oh I found someone. Um, like, but what it actually means is that to be unconditionally loved and to enter into such a union is to take a trust fall. 
It's to let go of your protections. It's to let go of your fig leaves. It's to let go of those things we use to alienate and hide ourselves and keep ourselves safe and not to be seen. It's to let go of those things and to fall into something bigger and beyond us. It's to fall into the transcendence and the nature of the king. It's to say, okay, here I go. I have no more control. He is mine and I am his. And then right when you think that you're going to hit the floor, he catches you because he's trustworthy and he loves you. That's what it means to fall in love. And that's the standard we have. And she's now saying, no one has any business with giving themselves to another human if we have not learned what love means from the king of the universe. To be embraced by him is where we learn what it means to be embraced by another. Do not awaken love um, before it pleases. Uh, that's a lot like um, don't wake someone up before their alarm because they usually don't like that. <laughs> do not, in other words, do not love. Love needs to be awakened with the awareness that the king loves us even in our darkness. You cannot force love. You cannot make love happen in someone's life. They have to be willing to fall into it and be embraced by the king. They have to make that choice. We can't pressure people into that. We can't tell people, why aren't you where you need to be yet? We can only like the others, the, the women that come along and just encourage the bride to go to the king and catch the good infection. That's what we can do. We can encourage people. But we can't make people love God. Nor can we make others love us. Do not awaken love before it is time. Love is not rushed through force or pressure. But love is a rush. You can't rush love, but it is a rush. It's exhilarating. It's a thrill. It's a trust fall. It's a let me just go into the abyss of the eternal God and see where he catches me. It's not to be rushed, but it is a rush. So, brothers and sisters, the king's love is contagious. Allow him to get close enough to you that you can catch the good infection. And we will see transformation in our lives and in our church and in our community and by his grace in the world. Our Lord and our God, infect us with your love and make us one with Christ our Holy of Holies. Amen.